for this day, uh, for this time. Uh, we ask that you would continue to meet with us as we look at your word. Um, pray that you would bless it and that we would uh, get a glimpse of who you are and that you would have the freedom to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Trenton. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, setting my stopwatch because I have a tendency to go over a lot. And Joe's not here to wave me down. Um, Pastor Wayne is uh, preaching at Christian Layman this week. We were at Mount Hermon. Pastor Joe is uh, preaching at um, Orchard Valley. And Abe and I get to do whatever we want here. So we've decided to change the time of the service. We're not going to record this message. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, um, we're going to continue our, our series here in stewardship um, and continue to talk about finances. Uh, Pastor Abe spoke last week about tithing, um, a very specific uh, way in which we steward or we uh, take what has been given to us and, and uh, use it the way that God wants. Um, today we're going to back up a little bit. Um, I will, sh- I will sh- kind of give you a peek behind some of the thoughts that pastors have um, that we're afraid of. Oh, we, I, not me, but <laughs> others may be afraid of. And I haven't really seen this at Lighthouse very much, but there is a reticence in some ways to talk about finances in the church because um, if you, if you go too hard on people, then they'll get mad and then they won't give. And then the fear is that then the, you won't have enough money to um, pay the bills and have a job and things like that. And so you kind of just let people go with whatever they're going to do. Um, and so we don't talk about it all that much. It's a, it's a subject kind of like sex and different things that is kind of in there, but we don't freely discuss. It's one of those things where we uh, kind of put it on the side. We refer to it every once in a while. I once heard of a church that in their small groups um, that they had CEOs and um, uh, day workers and different things, and everyone knew what everyone made. <laughs> they like literally would kind of say, this is what I made. And the CEO was like, I made like $500,000. He's like, I made like $5,000. And it was a way to, to, to show and to keep each other accountable because then the CEO guy couldn't just go off and spend, you know, more money on, you know, on a meal than the dude made in a week because then he just, how do you explain that, right? So it was a way to kind of hold each other accountable in this and made me feel really, really uncomfortable. Like, man, I don't think we should do that at our church. Good for them, not, not for us. Um, we're going to step back a little bit. Um, when we talk about money, um, I think there's a sense in which everyone thinks about it all the time, okay? Whether you have a lot or you have a little. One of the things that um, w- when we worked with the boys in, in, uh, in Kenya was they, they always thought, talked about rich people as kind of the ones that wanted money and had all this money and were money hungry. And I said, just be careful, because I would imagine that you think about money, just the lack of, just as much as somebody that has, has a lot. And so when we talk about it, it isn't just the amount of money that we have. It isn't just what we do with it, okay, that's important. The title of this message is called Financial Freedom. I thought about kind of coming in, wasting a few minutes on trying to sell you on the idea that God wants you to be rich, and then see if you kind of caught on, and people would be like, 
what is he talking about, really? And then kind of switch over. Um, but then I felt like, depending on when people walked into the service and when, you are like, and they walk out, like, oh my gosh, Lighthouse is this prosperity gospel type. So I kind of erred on the side of caution and, yeah, I don't know. Um, this, um, this question, financial freedom, I want you to think about uh, how much money would be enough for you. Uh, for those of you that work, for those of you that don't work, you're like, a thousand bucks, and I could do everything I want to do, you know, and then for those of you that work and then have a mortgage or have a car payment or, you know, actually feed your children or something, a thousand bucks isn't going to get you all that far. Um, but show, uh, somebody throw out a number. It could either be the number you've heard, uh, some of you guys are financial people, uh, I know that you're thinking, well, it kind of depends on how old you are, because then you have to decide how, much, how long you have you know, to spread that out. Some of you, it's, you know, comes to mind, what comes to mind is, well, what, what, what level of living do I want to have, and for how long, what's the cost of living? Give me a number. What's a, someone shout out a number. What is the number, how much money would be enough for you to be financially free? A million bucks. Okay, so maybe it's a million bucks for some people. What's another number? For those of you guys that know that a million bucks isn't enough, What's the number? Double it and it's two million. <laughs> Some of you are really, really conservative here because you know that depending on if you're 20, if you're 20 years old in here and you never work again, two million dollars over the course of your lifetime, if you live 60 more years, you divide that out, okay? The, the number in your mind, if you scribble it down or whatever, really isn't all that important. It's really just to kind of get your mind around this idea of financial freedom being tied to an amount, okay, tied to the amount of money that you have in order to be free, in order to do the things you want to do financially. Um, I have, and, and, I, and I'm going to make kind of the, the argument over this next little while that it isn't the amount of money that you have. It actually isn't the stuff that one has that's important. It's the one that holds that stuff. It isn't the amount of money that one has. It isn't the amount of stuff that one has that makes one financially free. It's the one who holds those things. We're going to look at a couple, we're going to look later on at the parable of the rich young ruler. We'll, we'll dive into that. Um, there's also, and, and the story goes, there, the story goes, there's a rich young ruler, right? There's a young guy, lots of money. He goes up to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he says, follow these commandments. And he goes, well, since the time I was young, since I was a boy, I've done that. And then Jesus looks at him, loves him, and says, well, then one thing that you lack, sell all the things that you have and give to the poor. And the dude walks away sad because he had a whole bunch of stuff. There's another somewhat, or somewhat very contrasting, you know, account where there's people giving in a church. Jesus is watching this particular area where they go and give money, and the rich people are just waiting, bam, 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 just throwing out a whole bunch of money. And then an older widow takes a couple of coins, drops it in, and Jesus says, this person gave more than everybody else because everyone else gave out of their abundance, out of their riches, and she gave out of everything that she had to live on. That, that somehow the amount of money, like 
for this person, the freedom had nothing to do with that amount of money. And the bondage had nothing to do with the amount of money over here. That these two contrasting people, wow. Flick it for me. There you go. That these two contrasting people, the contrast of these two lives are, are stark. One is influential, one is a landowner and wealthy, and he couldn't give up what he had. The older woman had no influence, no security. People are taking care of her probably because she doesn't work. And she gave of all she had. Which one of these two had freedom? And which one of these two had, was, was in bondage? See, I think in some ways we, we, we hear messages or we read scriptures about finances or different areas and we, we justify or we kind of look through the cracks and we go, well, that applies to everybody except me. And so we can, listen, we can read this, we read the parable of the rich young ruler, oh, that's a commandment to one individual person, so then since it's a commandment to him to sell all of his riches and give to the poor, then none of that passage has anything to do with how I hold my finances or how Jesus looks at finances, I just move on. Because that thing makes me very uncomfortable. We look at the widow, and she, she gave all of she had. And obviously it's descriptive, it's not prescriptive, Jesus would never want me to give all I have, or if I gave everything, you know, I, I have to feed myself, I have to feed my children, I have to, you know, take care of things, I have responsibilities, all of which are true, okay? But, but lest we fall into the trap of seeing money, mammon, physical things, resources, in, in the way that the world does, okay, I would plead with us, and in, in the same way myself, to, to seek God and his truths for what they are, and then be confronted with those in some ways as the rich young ruler, ruler was. Um, I have two friends. Uh, <laughs> so let me give some context to that. I probably have more, but I'm going to talk about two. Um, I, had, I have two friends, one of which I don't um, interact with very much anymore. And this is going to highlight kind of a contrast of how people see and view resources and finances. Um, I'll call my one friend, Friend A. Friend A, um, I met when I was a young, young Christian. Uh, He seemed to have this great marriage. He was a strong Christian, went to Pepperdine, was involved in Campus Crusade for Christ, um, spoke scripture, talked about doing massive things for the kingdom, uh, drove nice cars, owned businesses, houses, and things, and he wanted to, and he just spoke about Christianity all the time. Uh, He would counsel uh, married couples. He counseled me. He was a mentor of mine. Um, And when I moved up to the Northwest, I spent some time with him um, when I was doing uh, mortgage mortgage loans. And uh, one day, uh, after a little while, I started to notice some ways in which he would make decisions. And justify them using kind of Christian language. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, and so then 
the, the goal or the, the end result was more important than the path to get there. And so you can kind of cut corners here and there. You can kind of fudge on this number or this, this page or sign this or that and everything. And the goal of, of, of investing in the kingdom and giving lots of money away and building this and that, um, the dream or the vision was, was more important than how we got there. And I, uh, we started to think about whether this was a relationship that we really wanted to continue or not. Um, uh, fast forward a little while, and I had stopped kind of spending time on a personal level and, and professionally uh, with him. And I'm, I'm working at an escrow office. And you guys ever see those movies where uh, FBI agents start kind of popping it out of everywhere with, you know, guns and everything under, like, the, under the beds and under the tables and everything. They're like, where did you come from? They didn't have guns and there was no beds or anything. I was in my escrow office, one of my, I was in an escrow office, and, like, literally 15 FBI agents kind of started coming in, and they started grabbing these files, and then they asked, they said, you, and because they said, they knew who I was, they had all of my financials, they had my bank, my bank records and everything. Um, Trenton, I want to talk to you. I was like, okay. Um, so you go back into the room, and on paper, I, there's a lots of traceability back to my friend A, because I had spent lots of time with him. Now, we didn't benefit from anything. We had talked about future stuff. Um, the short of it is I get a good cop, bad cop kind of thing, and they're trying to kind of mess with me. Um, friend A uh, had made some decisions and went away to prison for five years. Okay. Um, till the, and I haven't had any interaction with him since, till the day that he went and he was uh, uh, sentenced, I didn't do anything wrong. Um, I was, you know, it was a mistake, it's a misunderstanding, um, yeah, kind of a victim kind of thing. Um, still kind of talking about Jesus and God and, you know, what God was calling him to. I have another friend, friend B. Uh, it's a mutual friend of ours, and he's known my friend A for a longer time. Um, and uh, friend A, along the way, asked, asked friend B to sign a couple of papers. Um, don't worry, it's not a big deal. Uh, just need to kind of get this deal done. It'll help us out a lot. Um, friend B owned a company and had invested money with friend A. And he said, okay, yeah, you trusted him and everything like that. When the FBI came to me, also went to friend B and said, hey, is this your signature? And he's like, yeah. You know, friend A asked me to sign this, and that's a federal crime. Really? <laughs> um, okay. Uh, and, and here's where the contrast goes. Friend A continued to say, I'm, I'm innocent. You know, this, is, you know, this is a misunderstanding, everything like that. O took no ownership in that. Friend B said, that is my signature. If you're saying that's against the law or that's a crime, then, then I'll take whatever punishment that you want. I'm a Christian. And friend B ended up going to prison for over a year. Friend B is, is a really, really good friend of mine and has impeccable character. And I would trust him with not only my money, but my life and my, my, life and my family. Um, and when you look at how people respond in certain situations when money and finances and things are involved, one can either own or steward possessions, or one can be, either, can be owned by those things. And it doesn't matter what they say and everything like that. It's how they respond and how they act. Friend B is actually the reason I'm at Lighthouse. 
uh, I was going to make a joke that I can ask Hip if I could share this story now, but um, friend B is, is my friend Hip, and he's the one that invited me to Lighthouse. Um, and so when you see these contrasting views of how people uh, steward the things that are entrusted to them, how they respond, the ownership that they take, it, it makes you think about what, what finances really are, who is actually in bondage, and who is free. Stewardship doesn't start with the practical. We could come in here and do kind of a let's do a budget and let's kind of cut out a pie and say you need to tie this amount, save this amount. You guys can decide whatever that is. Tie this amount, save this amount, spend this amount, give this amount away. We could do that, okay? And I think, and Pastor Joe is actually, I think, going to do a financial series or something to help think biblically about how the money on this side of things is spent, once it's out, how, it, how it's spent, and how we use it. But stewardship, honestly, okay, whether it's time, treasures, or talents, doesn't start with the practical stuff, okay? It starts with the foundational things, who you are, where you find your identity, your security, what you place your trust in, who's in control. In the end, it's a heart issue, okay? The relationship with God and living out the Christian life, and we're going to talk about this as we get into the rich young ruler, but is not about, okay, I got a principle here, let's do that. I have a practical thing here, okay, I need to spend this here, I need to spend it here, spend it here. It, it does involve that, okay? But unless we deal with foundational core hard issues, that stuff up there will just kind of flip back. It's just kind of, it's kind of like asking yourself, what is it at the core of who you are, okay? What is your life built upon? Because what's down there, everything else is going to be built upon that, so if inside there's something other than, I'll say, Jesus or who he says you are, then how you build your identity and your security and then how you use your money comes out of all of those things. Man. If we look at the money part, okay, and just deal with the money part, it would be like trying to ch change the tree by rearranging the branches, you just go up there, start cutting, cutting branches around, and hopefully if you move around enough branches, then the tree's going to change in some way, right? And it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. We're going to jump into this passage in Mark chapter 10, and we're going to look at a number of things and as it relates to finances. Um, here we go. We're going to read. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, um, if, you read, if you read through Mark, uh, it doesn't actually call him a rich young ruler. You're like, well, where does that come from? Well, it, there's parallel passages, right? The synoptic gospels, synopsis, like the same Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, they all trade off of similar stories. And then John's kind of over here talking about different things in a different way. Um, the Synoptic Gospels all have, or not all, 
have similar stories. And when you look at the parallel passages, in Mark, he says he's rich. In Matthew 19, he says he's young. And in Luke 18, he calls him a ruler, a rich, young ruler. (laughs) Some of the titles call him rich, young ruler. You're like, how does it get that? (laughs) So when we read our scripture, when we take all the things together, and you can kind of surmise that he was a rich, young ruler. When, we come, when Jesus is approached by this young man, there is a couple different ways to look at how he comes to him. Some people think he's coming up kind of sarcastically. Hey, good teacher, uh, tell me how to inherit eternal life. I, would, I think that in some ways how he approaches him, he ran up and he felt to him and he fell on his knees. It's a, and the questions that follow, I like to picture it less of that. Either I am kind of sarcastic and kind of skeptical, and so I can, I can really, really picture the other one. I like to think of it as coming in reverence and, and respect, coming with some, some, some questions about, about what it is that, that Jesus is teaching and, and who, who it is that is saying these things. There is a little bit of a a, a, a reveal here, though, kind of a peek behind, because there is somewhat of a misunderstanding about salvation in the posing of the question, what must I do, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I wonder if you and I, in some ways, though, we talk about grace, we talk about Jesus saving us, if we picture our picture of the Christian faith is somewhat similar to his, that his, he presupposes that he's going to have to do something. He's going to ask Jesus, what do I do? What is it that I do? I have this money, I have this stuff. What do I do to inherit eternal life? And I wonder if we, as we sit in the seat or as I'm standing up here, our, our understanding of salvation has more to do with what we do than who it is that we are and who it is, what it is that Jesus has done. Where we wake up in the morning and don't first and foremost live into this grace and forgiveness um, and love that God has for us, but it's, bam, what's my list of things to do? What are the things that I need to accomplish? Uh, I need to do my quiet time. I need to memorize some scripture. I need to go to, go to church on time, 8.30 next week, right? So we Abe and I decided to change the time, um, 8.30 next week, and you just kind of check stuff off, and what do I do? And if I don't do those things, then I'm in jeopardy of not inheriting eternal life. I'm not being a good Christian. And in the end, I don't know that any of those things, although they are helpful insofar as helping you understand who God is and, pl- and plays a role in your relationship with God, does not do a single thing to help you e- inherit eternal life. And so, though this, I think, is a sincere question, it's sincerely coming from a wrong place. Though we have these same questions, God, what do you want me to do? If that is a, what do you want me to do in order for you to be pleased with me, and then I have kind of eternal life attached to that, it may be a sincere question, but if it's tied to our relationship with God and whether he loves us or doesn't love us, then we're sincerely wrong. This passage is about money, but it is about a whole bunch of other things, too. 
Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Some people think this is a veiled reference to Jesus being um, God, and, and I, suppose it, I suppose it could be. Um, I don't really read it that way. I, honestly, I think he's just saying that God is good, that, that God is the supreme good, that the commandments that God gives us are, are good, the ones that he's going to list here, and also the one that he asks, he speaks directly to the heart of this young, this, this young, rich young ruler, that God asks of us, it, the things are good because God is good. See, one of the things I think happens for us is that we, we separate in some ways or have a hard time tying certain things together. We have our theology that says God is sovereign, which he means he's in control, and he's good, which means he's all good, which means all the things that emanate from him and have their being in him, the commandments and what he says and what he calls us to are good by virtue of him being good. And then we read certain things and are called to certain things and go, dang, is that really, really good? And then we question and we doubt and we, we kind of balk. I don't, I don't really know if I want to do that stuff. I think Jesus is basically saying God is good and everything he asks of us is good. And as it relates to finances, and then what he asked of him there, I would imagine that we evaluate the goodness based on something other than whether God is good and he's going to see us through these things or not. We, we evaluate it based on maybe our retirement package, our plan. Is this, gonna, is this good as it relates to me being able to live, you know, live abroad, <laughs> carefree, financially free, and if it doesn't match up with that, then it's not good. I want to stop working at a certain time. I want to, st- or I want to buy this kind of place or these number of places, and if what God is asking me to do doesn't line up with this, or this is my plan for my life and my future, and if God doesn't do something in alignment with that, then it's not good. And what we've done is separated the things that we know about God being good from the things that he calls us to, and we evaluate the things he calls us to based on us as opposed to what we know about the one who calls us. And he does this here. Why do you call me good? And then he he goes on. And I think Jesus is just saying that he's good. Verse 19, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. It's kind of the second book, right, of the Ten Commandments, the one that in, involves interaction with other people as, as a reflection of your uh, worshiping God alone, not having any idols, all those kind of things. The second book is the how does that play out. For those of you guys that have memorized that or remember when we went through, there's one in there, it goes like five, six, seven, Eight, nine, somewhere in there, and it's something shoved in there. Instead of do not covet, it says do not defraud. You're like, well, I don't remember seeing do not defraud in the top ten commandments. And it's not that he messed up. It's not that he doesn't know what, what's going on. In some ways, do not defraud is the same thing as do not covet. If you, in its extension of, if I want something of somebody else's, then I can kind of cut corners, 
I can kind of get in a situation where I'll take or I'll do something illegal, which is all a, a, a reflection of kind of the first ones. Do I honor God above everything else? Do I worship him or do I worship other things? Verse 20. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Honestly, I think for the most part, he believes this to be true. From the time he's maybe 12 or 13, you know, in the Jewish culture where they kind of do their bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, and then their age of accountability, and they have to follow these laws because they're an adult now at 13 or so, I don't know, anyways. Um, I think he feels like, okay, I've done those things. I haven't, you know, murdered anyone. I haven't defrauded people. I haven't, you know, uh, stolen, and I haven't done these things. And I've done all these things from the time that I was a boy. His answer to this, okay, is in some ways a reflection of his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, do these things. And then he says, I have done, done these things. I've, I've controlled what it is that I want to get out of this life as it relates to salvation. Salvation is based on what I've done, and I've done those things. And therefore, I can have pride in the fact that I've kept all the commandments. I've, I've, I've done the things that will, will grant me eternal life. And there's a, there's a sense in which, in, as we grow in our Christian faith, there's a danger that comes in to, to our following Jesus. That when we say yes to Jesus at the, very, at the very beginning, our first love, we understand that it is by grace and grace alone that we stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then somehow, somewhere, probably along the way, there's this sense in which we like to say, I have done those things. I've done this, and I've done that. I've done this, and I've done that. And God, aren't you proud of me? Aren't you, aren't you going to grant me eternal life by virtue of, of those things? And what I would encourage us to, to remember is that, and we'll talk about this in a little, bit, a little bit more, but that you and I, just like the rich young ruler, cannot in any way, shape, or form, do those things. Not since the time you were a young boy or a young girl. Not since this morning. <laughs> Be good enough with God to say, I've done those things. Uh, thanks for the eternal life that in some ways I have, I have earned. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. In some ways, I think this is kind of the hinge pin of this, of this chapter um, and helps us understand what it is that's going on. Is it money? Is it salvation? Is it whatever? Uh, I actually think, in a lot of ways, this is, this is the hinge pin of life. He says, Jesus, says, Jesus looked at him. It is not a passing glance. It's not a, oh, kind of mild recognition. <laughs> The, 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 the verb and the, the word in there looked is this penetrating, glance, penetrating look, this stare. 
Imagine Jesus looking at, at you through the mask, through the, the, the facade of, of, of good Christian on a Sunday morning, nice smiles and everything's, everything's good, and he sees just straight into your soul. Remember, it's a rich young ruler. He's got everything going for him. He's got influence and power and, and prestige and everything. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do these things. I've done these things. And then he looks at him. He just looks at him. But he also loves him. And it isn't a fleeting emotion of, oh, I have this fond affection for this young lad. <laughs> this is the God of the universe in human form looking into his soul and loving him. And what comes out of this good teacher are these good commandments and this good thing that he's going to ask of him. Good, not bad, good. Why? Because he sees him and he loves him. Whatever it is that God asks of you, either through Scripture or by His Spirit or anything, is because He sees you, He knows you, knows you more, deeper, better than your spouse, your mom, your dad, your kids, your best friend, anything. He knows you. He doesn't pretend to know you. He doesn't guess. He knows you. And He loves you. And he doesn't love you in a fleeting way like, okay, well, as long as you do the things that I want you to do, I'll love you. He loves you in a sense that he wants the very, very best for you. And the very, very best for you is not the things of this world, not the things that we kind of imagine in our little human pea brains. Okay? He, he, he wants the very best for you in that he wants eternity for you. He wants relationship with God for you. He wants the major things for you. And the sad thing is that when we think about what we want and the important things, we make God so stinking small, okay, and our idea is so big, and he's saying, really? That's what you want for your life? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Speaks directly into this, as well as I would imagine many, 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 many of our lives that we want these things, we want these things, and he looks at us and he says, I love you. And then for him, this one individual person who is not necessarily you or I, okay, he says, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will, you will have treasure in heaven. It is probably different for you and I what keeps us in bondage, okay, what keeps us from following Jesus. It, it probably is that the things that you struggle with, I will not struggle with. The things that I struggle with, I sure as heck hope you don't struggle with. Um, and so th as you're sitting in the seat, the things that keep you from radical trust, radical faith, radical um, surrender to this God of the universe are going to be different. They are. But as it relates to finances and things, there is a commonality that I don't think we can, we can ignore. We can't pawn off on the rich young ruler, okay, well, gosh, that guy, <laughs> he had a whole bunch of stuff, and he just couldn't follow Jesus. Why couldn't he just lay it down? And then we just have another thing. We just don't have, we label, we don't label stuff that we can't let go of, we can't lay down, and it keeps us from following Jesus. Okay, and there is passages, and we could have gone over, the, over it, that 
God really does see the fact that mammon, things, uh, physical resources, material resources, have a, an ability okay, to garner our attention and our affection in a way that, th- that other stuff can't. And so he says, you can only worship one. Worship one. You either worship God or you worship the stuff. You're going to love one and you're going to hate the other. You're going to hate the one and love the other. And you can't do both. And I know some of us are sitting here going, yeah, but I love God and I am going to use everything I have for the kingdom as I am greedy as heck. (laughs) And I don't know that this passage nor any of the scripture is really going to allow us to squeeze through that space. Okay, let me be frank and let me be clear. Scripture does not teach us that stuff is bad. Okay, Jesus' whole ministry was funded by people who had affluence and, and stuff, men and women, that basically funded his ministry. He was a homeless carpenter dude that you know, someone must have fed him. People had to take care of him. Okay? He's not saying, God is not saying that stuff is bad other passages are going to say that the love of stuff is, is the issue. One of the things I think is interesting as I read this over and over and over and over and over and over again is I'm thinking that when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he says, what must I do and inherit eternal life? Do these things. I've done these things. I think that he thought that the answer that he was going to give was one that he could do. Meaning, he fully anticipated (laughs) that when he went to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Whatever it was that he was going to say as it related to what I need to do, that that he was going to say, oh, I can do that. No problem. I can do that. I can do that. That seems a little tough. But... I'm tracking with you. I'm good. I can do that. And then he gives this, sell everything you have and give to the poor, that he puts something in between coming and following. There's a sharp contrast. As you read through this this chapter, there's a sharp contrast between how the rich young ruler responds and what Jesus does in the passages just prior with the little children, faith like a little child that trusts with everything. Doesn't ask questions, come over here, and, and Jesus says, faith like that guy, like that little one, that little girl. There's a contrast between this grace and faith that trusts in the, the Heavenly Father and then one that kind of hedges and says, ah, I don't... <laughs> I'm not sure I can do that. One little aside here um, is as we talk about what Jesus is asking of of him um, is is this, is this compassion part, um, give to the poor. Um, Sweet. Sweet. I think it's interesting that he doesn't just say, hey, just walk away from your stuff. Just leave it, open the door, just 
let the bandits come in and, and take it or burn it. Um, this isn't the major, the main part of the passage. Did I do that? Hopefully I didn't do that. Um, uh, this isn't the main part of the passage, but there, it is interesting that he says, sell all of your stuff and give to the poor. Um, I think in a lot of ways that our compassion for people, uh, the things that, the way in which we view other people is, is directly tied to our, our discipleship and our, and our walking with, with God. That it's interesting that as he rejects that offer, He's rejecting the helping of other people in that, same, in that same instance. And there is also a truth in here that when he's asked to give of something, that that something is going to go to someone that actually needs it, the people that are poor. The takeaway for me, and, and it's one in which it's a fine line for me, as we, as we lived in, in, in Kenya and we worked with boys that if they found like a a five-shilling thing. How much is five shillings? Like two and a half cents or whatever. They'd keep it. We lose dollars, ten dollars, like fifty bucks, and we're like, oh, I'll find it somewhere else. You know, it'll it'll turn up somewhere. And every time I had a Coke, I'm like, dang, they're not gonna have a Coke. Every time I go out to have a meal here or have a have a latte, which I try not to have lattes now because regular coffees are cheaper. Everything that I spend on myself, I actually can't spend on somebody else. So this may be the one application, like practical application, because I've been told I need to do a practical applications. The one practical application is when you buy something, ask yourself, what is the purpose of this purchase? What is the, what, how does it advance the kingdom in, in this way? Do I need this or do I need that? And if I buy this, Am, am I making it so I can't spend it on somebody else? Um, okay, we need to run through this pretty quickly here. Um, Jesus says, after he, says, after he indicates or asks him to sell everything, says, come follow me um, now. There's this um, dynamic in some of the past in Scripture when Jesus is talking that in order to follow, there's this uh, deny and follow, um, give up and follow, uh, consider others better than yourselves and, and follow. Um, and I think, I think they're inextricably tied together. That in order for me to follow Jesus, it, it's presuming that I am denying myself because I want to go somewhere else. And in this case, he's contrasting this give and then follow. You can come, but just let go of the things that keep you from coming, okay? And he says, follow me, and he says, follow me now. The reality is that there is a heavenly space, okay? There is a heavenly place of which there will be no crying, no tears, no sadness, on the other side of death, as we are resurrected to new life and, new, and, and, and a new body. But the eternal life that Jesus is offering and welcoming us into actually starts right now. That, that when we say yes to him, he's asking us to follow him in the here and now. 
the, the rich young ruler said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He had already inherited stuff, right? Because you kind of pass stuff along, and he's saying, what do I have to do to inherit later on? And Jesus says, well, now sell all this stuff. And a lot of times we try to kick the salvation part. Okay, I'll need to kind of get everything kind of in, in order towards the end. And Jesus is saying, no, right now. What is it that, what is it that he wants for you right now? Okay. Saddest verse in the Bible. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. His disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? There's this double thing where he's, he says something. It's uh, hard for a rich, they say, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Um, and then disciples were amazed. We say, why are they amazed? <laughs> Part of it's because in that time, much like maybe today, riches, wealth, stuff, is a sign that, of blessing. It isn't, necessarily. Because otherwise we'd be saying, poor people aren't blessed by God. Jesus was poor. All his disciples died. Poor. Okay, there is not necessarily a correlation between rich and blessing. And when he was speaking this, he's saying the rich is going to be tough. And that's why he's saying, all the disciples are like, what? Wait, I don't understand. I thought if rich people, then God's blessing them. And then he says, though, low that we think that he's just talking about rich people. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. So he doesn't say rich people. He just says, it's just hard to enter the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to do this. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for someone who is rich. And so he flits back to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, really quickly, I just think it's a camel, which is the biggest animal, and then the eye of a needle, which is the smallest hole, and that's it. Camels, don't go through that hole. Okay? And so we're not going to, well, I won't, um, say, well, the camel has got a lot of stuff on its back. And in early Jerusalem, there was a gate called the eye of the needle. And so then in order for the camel to go through, then he had to get on his knees and he had to strip all the stuff. That reference doesn't come into the ninth century after the Jerusalem was already destroyed. Some people think rope is a word for camel because camel and rope is like one word off, but that doesn't come until the 5th century. It's a camel. It's really big. And then there's a little hole, and so they can't go through. The disciples were really amazed. Like, what? So then how, so then how can one be saved? If that is not possible then how is one saved? And Jesus looked at him and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Well, when we talk about our finances, okay, when we talk about what is important and what, how it is that we form and shape our life, it comes back down to who is at the center of, of what, what in our, our being? Is 
ourselves the most important thing? Is the world and its values informing that? Because then our identity, our security, and then how we use our money, how we think about money, how we pursue money, will come out of those things. Or is Jesus at the center of who we are? And it has a freedom to tell you who you are. He can look into you. He can look through the facade and the fake stuff like that and help you understand that you are a child of God, holy and beloved outside of anything that you do and anything that you have. That your security is found in Him. That financial freedom, freedom from anything, is only found in Him. If our identity, our security, and our trust is placed in something that can change, fleeting, or goes away, it is misplaced. And Jesus is basically saying, in some ways, it is impossible to be saved. It is impossible to live this life. It is impossible with man. However, it is possible with God. You can be saved. You can live this life. You can know who God is. You can do these things. But it, you cannot if I am in control, I determine my security, I determine my salvation, I determine, I determine, I determine, I control, I control, I control, and I trust in myself. Until that core is swapped out, until that, that tree is changed, Switching around the branches and all that kind of stuff doesn't really do a whole lot. And so the rich young ruler walks away sad because he has built his life on something other than what God is asking us to do. This morning, we're going to take communion, and um, this is a good time in a lot of ways to reflect on the truth that uh, we are not in control of our lives. That in Jesus... um, We have a Savior. In Jesus, we have the answer to life's issues and problems in the here and now, but also for eternity. That with God, with man, it is impossible, literally impossible. Big camel, little hole. But with Jesus, with God, it is is possible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, Paul's talking, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me that this God who loves you, who sees you, who knows you, who loves you, gave of his life. His body was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me, he says. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup, uh, in the, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat, this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
we talked this morning a little bit about money. And my hope is that as we think about finances and stewarding the things that we have, um, we think about who we are at the core of who we are and who it is that informs how we use those things. But it may be for some of you that there's a realization that you've placed your trust not only in this world, but also for the life to come in something other than Jesus. And so I'm going to pray um, and invite you uh, to um, accept that for the first time, if that's you. So let's pray. Father, this morning, there may be some among us um, that on their journey to you have come to a place where they realize that they cannot do this on their own. That this life, um, their sin, the, the challenges of this world are impossible with man to overcome. And so we turn to you and um, recognize that you are the Savior of our souls and of this world. And so if, if you are here for the first and ready to say yes to Jesus for the first time, um, which will enter into this lifelong relationship with the God of this universe, I would ask that you would pray with me uh, the following prayer in some ways and make it your own. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner, that by the evil that I do and the evil that's within, that I separate, have separated myself from you. And that you, Jesus, are God and King. And you offered your life on the cross for me that I may have life here and now and eternal life with you forever. And so I accept that truth for myself and receive salvation and the gift of your spirit within me that will help me live this life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, um, I'd ask that after service, maybe come and um, as we offer prayer after service, come and share that, have somebody pray, that, pray, pray with you. Uh, we're going to now uh, participate in communion together. I uh, would invite you to come up the inner aisles. Um, they'll direct you to your your stations, and then there will be prayer people on the side that uh, would love, love, love to pray for you, lift you up before the Lord. Um, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for this time where we can come and again acknowledge what you've done for us by your death on the cross, offering your life that we may have life, life eternal. In Jesus' name, amen.